Welcome to this week's episode. In this one, I have a conversation with UFC fighter Lauren Murphy. Lauren was introduced to combat sports in 2009 when she dropped her son off at a jiu-jitsu class. She ended up taking the class alongside him so that he wouldn't be afraid. He wasn't afraid, but she did get hooked. The following year, Lauren competed in her first MMA fight in Wasilla, Alaska. She knocked her opponent out in 17 seconds. It was the first fight she had ever been in. Today, when she talks about why she got into fighting, she says that she wanted to find out how brave she was, and the only way to know was to get right in the middle of all of it, and to make it as scary as possible. Okay, time to shout out the Crude Company men. These are the people who have subscribed to the Crude Patreon for $50 or more. Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, David North, Crystal Liska, Derek Adolph, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Sharon Liska, and Scott Liska. Thank you to everyone for your support. This podcast wouldn't be possible without you. Subscribing to the Crude Patreon is what keeps this podcast alive. It helps me pay for equipment, software, and allows me to keep a part-time job so that I'm able to produce a new episode every week. And you can subscribe at www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. That's patreon.com slash crude magazine and pick the subscription tier that works for you. A quick note here. I want to thank my friend and fellow journalist Aurora Ford for helping me with interview questions. Aurora recently received a Rasmussen Foundation grant to write a book about the female pioneers in mixed martial arts, as well as female warriors throughout history. That book will heavily feature Lauren Murphy. Okay, back to the conversation. I called Lauren the other morning at her home in Texas. After a few technical difficulties and drop calls, our conversation officially started. I don't want to give anything away because there are a lot of gems in this one. But after re-listening to this conversation, I think there is an overall message about the importance of surrounding yourself with the right people. Because everything in life flows from that. Those people can either frustrate you or support you. They can either drag you down with them or encourage you to become a better person. Lauren knows about toxic people and bad habits better than most. She's been down that road. But with the help of her husband, her son, and all the other healthy relationships in her life, she's now fully recovered and thriving. So here she is, Lauren Murphy. Mike is hot. Mike's hot? Mike's hot. Is it recording? That's what that means, dude. Crude Conversations. Listen more than you talk. Go to work! Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good, man. Just uh, kind of tidying up some odds and ends around here, getting ready to leave. I leave in two days to go to New Jersey, so I'm just taking care of some little stuff before I go. But other than that, yeah, I feel really good. And why are you going to New Jersey? Uh, I'm going out there for, uh, I forget what number the fight night is, but um, it'll be my sixth UFC fight, I think, or my seventh. I think it'll actually be my seventh UFC fight. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to go out and fight August 3rd at the Prudential Center in New Jersey. That's got to be pretty exciting. Yeah, it is. Uh, I mean, you know, going any fights really are exciting. I was just as excited for my first pro fight as I am for this one. So, um, 
Yeah, I think even like in your amateur career, all fights are exciting. They're all important. Maybe can you take me through the process of getting ready for a fight? Sure. Well, the promoter will call you and um, the promoter calls. Uh, so the promoter is like the UFC or in Alaska, it's the AFC. And they'll have a matchmaker um, that, that matches up the fights. The matchmaker will call you or they'll call your manager and they'll say, you know, we want you to fight this person on this date. Would you do that, basically, you know, and it's up to the fighter to say yes or no. Uh, usually we will say yes. And hopefully the promoter will give you somewhere between six weeks to three months. So anywhere from six to 12 weeks uh, to get ready for that fight. So generally you need about, oh, I don't know, four to six weeks to really get in shape, get your weight down, get your cardio up, um, if, uh, if you're super big into game planning, like if you need to game plan for your opponent, then you might need a few weeks extra to kind of drill and get ready for that. But, um, you know, for the most part, fighters train year-round. So it's not like you're just picking up from nothing and going. Uh, generally, we're usually in pretty good shape all the time and practicing and learning and growing all the time, even outside of camp. So fight camp is really just about kind of fine-tuning some skills, honing some of your skills to prepare for a specific opponent, and then really getting into shape. Do you learn any new skills? Do you learn, like, any new moves? Sure, sometimes. Uh, you know, it's hard, you know, when you're doing anything, any kind of skill, whether it's taking pictures or fighting or cooking, any kind of skill that you have has to be practiced for a long, long time before you can master it, right? So fighting is not really any different in that regard. But, you know, you might work on something a little different. Like, for instance, if you're fighting a wrestler, you might really focus on your take defense. Now, hopefully it's not your first time ever focusing on that. You know, hopefully you'll have some idea of how to defend a takedown before going into fight camp. But, um, yeah, sometimes you might pick up a new little tip or trick. And then the... The hard part is remembering to do it in the fight, you know, doing it in training is one thing, doing it when, you know, lights and there's people everywhere and you're not sure what your opponent is going to do. That's kind of something else. So <laughs> you might learn a new trick or two while you're in fight camp, but generally you're just going to really fine tune the skills that you already have and, and kind of pick the direction that you want to go. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Six to eight weeks just isn't really enough time to learn a completely new skill, in my opinion anyway. So is there a type of, of fighter that maybe you like fighting more or less? Like like an opponent where you're like, oh, man, like, I don't know. Yeah, sure. No, I, I know what you're saying. Um, yeah, I just like to fight girls that actually want to fight. So there's there's actually a lot of fighters out there that will do their best to avoid a good fight. Um, they don't, like, uh, this sounds kind of crazy, but, like, they don't want to get hit. They don't want to get taken down. They don't want to, like, get in the shit. And I like to get in the shit. I like to make fights messy. I like to make them crazy. Um, you know, I like to slug it out. I like to have like a war, basically. And there's a lot of fighters out there that will try to avoid that. And, and that's not anything to be ashamed of. Like a lot of fighters have this philosophy that the idea is to hit your opponent and not get hit. But for me, I just, you know, I wanted to know, like, basically how brave I was. And so the only way you can find that out is by getting right in the middle of it all and making it as scary as possible and seeing how far you can push yourself. So I don't like to fight women that try to avoid fights at all costs. 
So you don't mind getting hit? No, not at all. Like when you're sparring, it's not the most enjoyable thing. But when you're actually in the fight and you have a lot of adrenaline and your blood is pumping and everything is going, you don't really feel it in the fight much. Like I, like I started this sport to know uh, if I could have a war and survive it and come through the other side. And I wanted to see, you know, how brave I could be. So uh, the only way to do that is to have a war. You know what I mean? Which obviously mm-hmm. means you're going to get hit. So how do you know how well you can take a punch unless somebody punches you? When did you realize that you didn't mind getting hit? Um, probably. And, and I guess I should, I should, um, clarify that you didn't mind getting hit in a, in a fight. Right. Probably in my third fight, I think, um, I fought a woman who was a pretty well-known boxer around Anchorage and, uh, she hit me in the face a bunch of times. And I just remember thinking like, ah, oh, this isn't so bad. This is okay. Like it was one of my worst fears and, and it was happening to me and I was fine. So um, yeah, right in the middle of my third fight, I figured that out. <laughs> you know, getting back to, you said that something to the effect that, you, you know, you appreciate the challenge and, and pushing yourself. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of what life is all about, right? Like life is about challenges and it's about taking risks. And, um, when I first started fighting, the whole idea was, was that I was kind of scared of it. And, um, I I wanted to know like how brave I could be. I wanted to know if I was brave enough to be in the middle of a fight and and survive it, you know, and not just survive it, but maybe um, come back and win it, you know, like what's it like to be under the lights and have everybody looking at you and maybe be in the middle of this big bloody war? Like, would I be able to pull it off? Would I be able to come back from being down? And um, the the idea of it just really intrigued me. I, you know, it was something that I didn't, want to go to my grave never knowing it made me feel like a coward to wonder about it and never try it you know mm-hmm. what was your first fight like um my first fight was super short uh it was out in Wasilla, and i was really nervous but you know i think when you get into those moments where it's kind of like i don't want to say do or die because obviously you're not going to die in a fight uh but i just um well hopefully you won't die in a fight. But I was just, you know, it was like, okay, what can I do? And I I just had a huge adrenaline rush. Uh, I walked out, I didn't hear like my walkout music playing at all. And there was a woman that at the time that was a ferocious fighter, she still is. And her name was Chris Cyborg. And she was like the most feared fighter on the planet for a really long time. And so I remember just thinking, like, just act like her, just act like her. And uh, I did. And so I knocked my opponent out in 17 seconds. I hit her with one punch and she fell down and I didn't even realize what had happened. I was like, like in my mind, I just thought like, what is she doing down there? I didn't even know that I had that kind of power to knock somebody down. And uh, she got up. I let her get up because I didn't realize I had knocked her down and I hit her again and she turned away and the fight was stopped. So that was my first fight. It, <laughs> it was very short, but it, it, you know, it was pretty exciting for me at least. I don't know how the crowd felt about it, but I just remember being so relieved and I had never really competed before in my life. I'd never played a sport. I had never done anything like that. And, um, you know, just getting my hand raised and just feeling so proud of myself. It was amazing. And I thought, man, that was really short. It almost doesn't count. So I have to do another one. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I did another fight about three months later. How important do you think 
a positive experience with that first fight um, is? Um, I would guess that for someone like me who had no competition experience, it was probably a lifesaver. Um, not too long after that, I did a boxing match and I lost a really close split decision at like the Thursday night fights. And that was pretty heartbreaking, but um, I remember crying after that. But it also kind of stoked a fire in me. Like I didn't want to just end like that, you know, like I, um, it really kind of motivated me after that to, to just keep getting better and to fight harder. Like I think every fighter that experiences a loss immediately kind of wants a do-over, you know, mm-hmm. um, they want like, they just want to get those minutes back. They just want those seconds back so they can go back and get the win. And of course we can't do that. We can't go back in time and get our time back, but we can compete again. And in a way that is like getting your time back, you do get to go out and have a better performance afterward. So, um, I won my very first fight ever. That was really cool because it was in front of, it was on a, you know, the biggest stage I'd ever competed in. And it was in front of a lot of people. Um, And then I actually lost a fight not too long after that at the Thursday night fights. And it ended up just being really motivating for me. You know, hearing you talk about wanting a do-over, I mean, it sounds a lot like art. And I think that you could probably make the argument that fighting is an art. Um, I recently talk to a uh, a painter on the podcast and she was like I can't have any of my art in my house because every time I walk past it I feel like I need a paintbrush in my hand to fix something. Oh, interesting. So, hearing you say looking at every fight like, "Oh, I could have done this better or I could have done that better." You know, there's always room for improvement. Sure, there is. But, you know, um, a lot of times when I go back and look at my fights, I'm also just really proud of myself. I mean, there's always things we could have done better. And especially when you have a loss, it's like you have to go back and look at why you lost. But um, I have losses that I'm really proud of, too. You know, like I have losses where I competed my absolute best. I gave it everything I had and I pushed myself past what I thought I was capable of. And um, those losses are important, too. So, in a way, I can see how, you know, you, you might think think that about your fights, but I think it's important not to dwell on it too much. Like, mm-hmm. if if you just look at your fights and you're negative about it, then it takes all the joy out of fighting, you know? So it's it's important to just stay confident and, and stay positive and be happy with what you've accomplished, you know? How often do you watch your fights? Um, every once in a while, I'll go back and watch a fight, but it's not my favorite thing to do just because I know how much I've improved since that fight. You know what I mean? So it's not really that, like, I feel like I should go back and fix it and that I did a bunch of things wrong. It's more just like, uh, you know, I do, I do that better now, or I can do this part better now, or I've gotten better at this skill set. you know? Um, but sometimes I will go back and watch a, a fight of mine if like, um, if I'm like, man, in this fight, I showed a lot of heart. Like, I want to revisit that, you know, or I'll go back and watch some of my proudest moments. So I do like to go back and watch fights that I've won or that I performed really well in. I generally don't go back and watch fights that I've lost or that I did not perform very well in. You know, I kind of want to get back to you saying that there are fights that you've lost that you're really proud of. How important are those fights? Are those moments of like, oh, I lost, but, you know, I had a lot of heart? Uh, well, it took a while to get there. <laughs> so right <laughs> after the fight, you know, it was very heartbreaking. It's not fun. When you lose a fight, it's it's not just that 
um, you know, you get beat up, but you're getting beat up on national television. It's very embarrassing. And there's a lot of shame uh, kind of connected with it and guilt and remorse. And um, every fighter that I've ever met that loses immediately apologizes to their coaches and to everybody that supports them, which is really kind of ass backwards when you think about it. But everybody does it. And it can take a while to kind of get over that hump or that depression of losing. And, and every single fighter that I've met goes through it. So um, it took me a while to get there. But looking back after a while and having some experience and growing from it, then I was able to look back at, at one fight in particular I was really proud of, um, even though I lost it. So, yeah, it, it I think it takes a while to get there, but it's definitely possible. And I think it is important, too, to be proud of those to be proud of those times you know even in your losses it's like man when we're old when I'm 80 years old I'm going to be looking back on this career it would be awful to look back on my career and be like oh yeah like I didn't learn anything from it or I'm not proud of that time like Mm -hmm. that would be terrible you mentioned the the fight that you lost that you're proud of do you mind sharing which one that was sure it was my fourth fight in the UFC I fought a woman named Caitlin Chukagian and I fought her on really short notice. Um, I had a really terrible weight cut. Um, everything basically that could have gone wrong went wrong <laughs> for that fight. And it was still really, really close. It was a very close competitive fight. Um, I lost by the slimmest of margins. You know, I was all I needed was one takedown to win the fight. I was literally in on the takedown that would have won me the fight at the end. And I think I just showed a lot of heart in that fight. I stayed pretty relaxed. Um, I did some things in that fight that I didn't really know I was capable of. And uh, even though I lost the fight, you know, and it it did really hurt at the time. And it hurt for several weeks afterward. Looking back now, I think it was one of my better performances considering everything I went through just to get in the cage that night, you know. Mm -hmm. So um, the truth is, is that like looking back, like people don't even really remember the fights that we win or lose. You know what I mean? Like the fans that are watching, all they really tend to remember is that we fought, you know, they just remember that like we were brave enough to get in there. That's why they appreciate it. That's why they watch it. So the embarrassment of like losing a fight does tend to fade. And then all you're really left with is your evaluation of your performance. And when I evaluate my performance that night, I'm really happy with how hard I pushed myself I'm happy with the things that I was able to pull out, even though, uh, even though I had a lot of adversity. Like I really did have a terrible, terrible weight cut, and um, um, I got pretty sick before the fight, and like it was on really short notice, and I wasn't in great shape. And I went out there and fought my ass off anyway. And that woman, Caitlin Chukagian, is in the top three now in the UFC, and uh, she's a title contender, and she's very, very good. She's beat a lot of really good people. And um, I was right there with her, even on one of my worst days. So what's to be ashamed about that? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, at least what I'm hearing, it's about being a graceful fighter. You know, you're you're graceful in the ring, but also you are, you're a good sport. Uh, try to be. It can be difficult, you know. <laughs> it can be hard. You're definitely walking a fine line. I do try to go up to all my opponents after the fight and like thank them for the fight. Um, I was taught that early on in my career by a woman named Caitlin Young. And I fought Caitlin. Uh, she was like my fifth or sixth fight, I think. And um, oh, she was my sixth fight. And uh, we had a great fight. And I had taken the fight on short notice. And she was a veteran of the sport. And she was um, 
really expected to win that fight. And uh, she didn't, you know, she she had some problems of her own. I think she had a weight cut problem of her own in that fight and just maybe um, mentally couldn't quite get it together. And I, I know that that was a hard loss for her. And she wrote to me after the fight and she thanked me for taking the fight. And it just really opened my eyes about good sportsmanship and like what fighting is all about. And so I learned a lot from Caitlin uh after that fight. And so I do try to go up to my opponents and thank them for the fight and tell them good job and, and all that kind of stuff. But it can be really difficult. You know, not everybody in the fighting industry is a nice person. And you're going to meet a lot of people that carry the fight, um, not just in the ring, but they carry it in their personality and they carry it in their heart. And you're going to have women that are arrogant and unkind. And, and that's, that can be difficult to deal with. So how about a win that you're proud of? Um, probably uh, two fights ago, I had a fight with a woman named Barb Honchak and, um, that's probably the win I'm the, one of the wins I'm the most proud of just because going into that fight, I felt like so much pressure put on me. There was a lot of people that really wanted me to lose that fight. I was coming out of a pretty bad time in my life and, uh, you know, a, a bad time in my career really. And, uh, Walking into that fight, I think there was a lot of people rooting against me. I was wondering if I was good enough to be there. And, you know, that week before the fight, I was able to just really let it all go. I was able to get into a really great mental space and really be in a state of flow for the whole week. And then especially during the fight. And so that's that's one of the wins that I'm I'm most proud of. Barb is a super tough, you know, the woman that I fought was a really tough opponent. She had a lot of accolades. She was a champion in another organization for a really long time. And so to get my hand raised after a really really great fight, it was a it was a war. It was one of those fights where um, you know, I really had to dig deep and and overcome a lot and that time it did work out for me. So, I think that's one of the fights I'm most proud of. What is the most important thing about a fight to you? Um, definitely having a good performance is the most important thing because I think um, if you have the right mindset, if you can kind of get into a flow state and stay positive, stay in the moment, you know, show off your skills and not get distracted by the crowd, not get distracted by your own thoughts, not get distracted by what your opponent's doing. You know, um, if you can just stay focused and calm and breathe and that will usually lead to having a really great performance and a great performance will lead to a lot of great things. You might not always win, but great performances lead to that. That's what leads to the fans cheering for you. That's what leads to making more money your next fight. That's what leads to the bonuses and, and the pride that you can feel even after a loss, you know, mm -hmm. is being able to go in there and perform. So we practice every day. Uh, we, we try to build muscle memory. But the most important thing is to be able to get into the right mindset and just go out and have a great performance. How do you get mentally prepared for a fight? Um, well, I meditate a lot. I try to meditate every morning. Um, sometimes if I'm out of my routine, I forget. But meditation has helped a lot f um, to help me focus. A lot of self-talk. Um, I write a lot. Um, I've seen a really great sports psychologist uh, named Jim Aframau. He's helped me a lot. Um, and then I just have really good, positive, supportive people around me, you know, that are going to love me no matter what. And that's super important to me. So my husband helps me a lot. And, and uh, yeah, and then, I mean, just a lot of practice time, you know, tons and tons and tons of practice. It's a very, it builds a lot of confidence to know that you've worked harder than your opponent or at least to know that you could not have worked any harder yourself. If I know that I've done absolutely everything I can to win this fight, 
And that includes like the mental preparation, the physical preparation, the drilling, the, the live sparring, everything, eating right, um, surrounding myself with the right people. If I know that I've done absolutely everything to get ready for a fight, then it, you know, at that point it's like, all right, let's just go fight. And, and, you know, the outcome is kind of up to the stars. <laughs> there's, mm -hmm. there's so little that we can control in this sport and really in life. Like we can't really control anything. I can't control if I'm going to win or lose. I can't control what my opponent's going to do. I can't control if the fight even happens, but I, I can control my performance and I can control how well I prepare for it. So just focusing on the stuff that I can control, I, I think is super important. So meditation is that, you know, when I think of MMA fighters, I don't think of meditation. Is that a relatively new thing? Um, I'm not sure if it's relatively new, but I think that a lot of the best athletes in the world meditate regularly, not just fighters, but basketball players, baseball players, Olympians. Um, I think a lot of the best athletes in the world meditate for a long or have meditated for a long time. Um, it's just a great way to clear the mind and stay in the moment. And I think the best athletes at the very highest level, that's what they're so great at is staying in the moment, you know, so I don't know anything about any other sports, but I know that like clutch athletes that can come through and like shoot a three pointer when, when they need to, you know, they're down to, and they need to shoot this three pointer and they're in overtime, the clock's running down. I know that if they're distracted by the crowd and they're thinking about whether or not they're going to make the shot and they're thinking about what's going to happen if they don't, then it greatly decreases their odds of success. You know, but if they can just stay in the moment and feel their bodies and stay in a state of flow, then all those outside distractions and uncontrollables are not a factor anymore, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I, I think that meditation just really increases the, the odds of success for any athlete um, and really any person in life. Like, you don't have to be an athlete to meditate. Um, the ability to kind of clear your mind and focus on what you can focus on and realizing that you know, your thoughts are just thoughts and that a lot of the thoughts that we think are just stories that we tell ourselves, I think could benefit pretty, you know, everybody in the world, really. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but all the greatest performers, I think, do practice meditation. When did you start practicing meditation? Um, about a year, no, maybe about two years ago now. And it just started really slowly, you know, it started like, two minutes at a time, three minutes at a time, really inconsistently. I couldn't really, I was having a hard time incorporating it into my routine, but um, I had um, a couple experiences of being in a flow state and it, it's a really focused, calm, relaxed state. And I, I had experienced that a few times in the gym and then, and then a few times also while I was fighting. And I wanted to know how to... Um, channel that regularly. I wanted to know how I could be in a flow state, get into a flow state, like kind of, you know, uh, on cue. And so I talked to my sports psychologist about it and he said, meditation, meditation is, you know, the way to go. And so I started meditating even more regularly after that. And I just really made it, um, I made it a priority to make it part of my schedule. And so it, it really is a lot more now. And I do, um, a lot of writing, I do more reading, and I do a lot of meditation. You've mentioned flow state now a couple times. For somebody who doesn't know what that is, like myself, could you explain it? Sure. Uh, well, I can try. I'm not a flow expert, but um, uh, for me, flow state is just, I'm sure you have felt it before, 
it's kind of the state where you're super focused. Everything seems to be falling into place for you. Nothing can go wrong. You feel a lot of confidence and maybe it's like whatever activity you're doing. So if you're playing basketball, it's like you just cannot miss the basket. You know what I mean? You're mm -hmm. just feeling the ball. It's just you. You're in your body and you're connected with whatever it is you're trying to do. So um, I don't know, for writers, writers can get into flow states really well uh, where they're just pouring words out. They're not even thinking about what they're doing. And then they look down and they've filled three, four, five pages. And it's brilliant. It's the best stuff they've ever they've ever written, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, for me, fighting in a flow state means that I'm remembering all the combinations that I want to throw. I'm seeing everything that my opponent is doing. Um, I feel like I can't miss. And even if I do have a small mistake, it's no big deal. I can move right past it without dwelling on it. Uh, uh, usually flow states are really effortless, so it's not a strained thing. You know, it's not something that like you're forcing at all. Like, for instance, if I'm in a flow state and I'm fighting or sparring or something like that, I could do round after round and not get tired at all because it's just effortless. I'm moving my body effortless, effortlessly. Um, and what they say is in a flow state is that it's, it's more like an unconscious state, like the reasoning part of your brain that weighs everything and thinks of everything. I guess it's your prefrontal cortex it shuts down. It's, it's, you're not reasoning, you're not thinking, you're just feeling and, and kind of flowing your way through these actions. And, um, it's a really enjoyable state. It's, you know, it, for me, I've had, <clears throat> I've had periods where I've been in flow states going to the gym, uh, for a week or two. And then I've had periods where I just, nothing can go right, you know? And so it's definitely an ebb and flow. It, it does come and go, it goes up and down. Um, and I'm still learning more about it myself, but that was actually the whole reason that I started meditation was because I wanted to experience that much, much more. And I wanted to experience it as often as I could. You know, I'm kind of noticing a theme throughout this conversation, and it's a fighter needing to know themselves as well as they can. So whether it's their biology, whether it's their um, whether it's working out, whether it's, you know, you, you have to be in control of all of your faculties. Yeah, I think that that's true. I, I'm not sure I understand what you're saying, but... I guess to clarify, like, you know, I'll, I'll bring this to myself. Like, I'll, I'll use myself as, as an example. Um, there are times when, I guess, being in a flow state, I'll think like, man, I'm really on it, you know, lately. <laughs> and yeah. and I think that that's, that's something that, like, in my mind, I'm not thinking flow state, but now I probably will since we've had this conversation. I'll be like, man, I'm in, I'm in, <laughs> I'm in my flow state right now. But... As far as the being in control of all of my faculties, what I mean by that is maybe for a month I'm drinking too much coffee or, you know, I'm not paying attention to my health. And I think that um, being aware of how healthy I'm being, what I'm eating, my diet, everything, I'm not thinking of that because my profession doesn't really revolve around that. That would be, you know, outside of what I'm pursuing, whereas... For a fighter, it all has to do with your well-being. You know, it has to do with your mental health. It has to do with your physical health. And I think that in doing that, you're probably overall just a much healthier person. <laughs> yeah, we definitely – it takes a lot of discipline uh, to – I mean, yeah, we have to watch what we eat. We have to make sure we're working out consistently. We have to go to the gym when we don't feel like it. Um um, yeah, we have to do a lot of stuff that we don't necessarily feel like doing, uh, to stay in good health and kind of stay connected with our bodies. But, 
Um, yeah, it takes a lot of discipline, that's for sure. You know, one thing I feel like I come across pretty often is the misconception that fighters are violent people. And I feel like I, I already know the answer to this question, but do you consider yourself a violent person? Oh, no. I, I've actually never been in a fight outside of the ring. So I've the only fights I've ever been in, uh, I've gotten paid for. Uh, except for with my brother. When we were kids, we would fight sometimes. <laughs> but, like, for yeah, I'm not a violent person, but... Um, I don't think so. I, I, I've met some fighters that are violent. You know, I've met people that are violent. And like I said, there's, there's a wide variety of people in this sport. And not all of them are good. Like, there's a lot of bad people in, in this sport as well. But there's a ton of really good people. And no, I wouldn't consider myself a violent person at all. What do you think makes someone want to become a fighter? I think it's totally individual. Uh, I, I can only speak for me, but I know that for me, it was just all about the challenge. It was about overcoming something that I was afraid of. And as, as that occurred, it's like, okay, I'm not afraid to fight anymore, but now the challenge is to have a good performance. And after I, after I've mastered that challenge, we'll see what challenge, uh, you know, waits for me next. But for me, it's been all about kind of overcoming challenges and, and uh, pushing myself past my own limits. But there are other people out there that I think that fight for different reasons. I think there's people out there that definitely fight because they're angry and they need an outlet. I think there's people out there that fight because they're violent and they're very good at it. Uh, I think there's people out there that fight because their parents want them to, <laughs> you know, and maybe push them into it at a young mm -hmm. age. Um, I've met fighters that are definitely born to fight also I've, there's I've met a couple guys in the sport that it's like okay that guy is doing exactly what he is supposed to be doing right now <laughs> you know so uh, I think it's all different for everybody it's super individualized okay so our mutual friend and journalist Aurora Ford emailed me like a one-page bio of you so I could familiarize myself with you for this conversation and she named the subject line, <laughs> quote, Lauren Mean Old Bitch Murphy. <laughs> What's the story there? Um, <laughs> so my husband, who's a wonderful man, actually today is our six-year anniversary. Uh, he is the nicest man you'll ever meet. But just the way I would fight, he would be like, man, you're a mean old bitch. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just there was a couple times where I had opponents that uh, they would get really bloody or I would really hurt them. Um and just kind of do mean stuff to them in the ring, like, um, you know, um, stuff like I had an opponent, she was trying to arm bar me. And so her head was on the ground and her legs were wrapped around my arm and I stepped on her neck to get out of the arm bar, which is kind of an <laughs> unconventional thing to do, but it just seemed like the right thing at the time. And so he was like, man, sometimes you're just a mean old bitch. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah, just in the ring, though. <laughs> so your actual fight name, though, is Lucky Lauren Murphy. That's true, yeah. Why Lucky? I'm the luckiest girl in the world. I don't think there's really any debating that. I, uh, I am married to a really great man. He's the greatest human being I've ever met. And I never thought when I was growing up that I would be married to somebody like that. Like, uh, I had no idea you could have a marriage as happy as ours. Um, I get to travel. Uh, my kid, I have an 18-year-old son, and he's turned out really, really just awesome. He's such a good kid, just a good human being, a kind kid, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, he's not a kid. He's a man now, but he's a very kind person. He's extremely smart. He's super funny. He's handsome. Like, I, I just don't know how 
I got so lucky to have such good things in my life. Um, you know, my life could have gone very differently and it, and it didn't, and it wasn't really because of any, like, it's not because I'm so smart or anything like that. It's because I just got super, super lucky. And I think the universe had a different plan for me. And, um, I just, I'm unbelievably grateful, but I truly am the luckiest woman in the world. Like I, I have a life that I don't deserve. I think that's for sure. In Aurora's bio of you, there's this paragraph where she gives some examples of your luck. It starts off with your history of drug and alcohol abuse. Would you mind talking about that a little bit? Uh, sure. So when I was younger, uh, when I was like 14, I started using a lot of drugs, just any drugs I could get my hands on. I I think I was probably born an addict. Not not I wasn't born addicted to a substance, but I think that it's just in my blood. It's in my genes that I have an addictive personality. And I think what they're finding now, too, is that it is quite genetic to have this um genetic marker that predisposes you for addiction and whatever that genetic predisposition is I have a shitload of it <laughs> I can't do anything without getting addicted to it so uh, for me I started using really heavily when I was a teenager and I, I would use any drug that came along so I got pretty involved into things like methamphetamine cocaine ecstasy uh, really heavily used Oxycontin. And this was right around the time the Oxycontin was just hitting the market. And so it was really cheap. It was easy to get. Um, everybody had it and, and it was inexpensive. And so I got super addicted to Oxycontin, um, became an IV user using needles, um, just anything that you could kind of put in a spoon and cook up, I would put in a needle and shoot up. And, uh, um, we had a lot of scary incidences. I was in the hospital a few times. Um, Aurora actually took me to the hospital once or twice. Um, I developed abscesses in my arms. One time I had a seizure, a grand mal seizure. And, you know, they had to call the ambulance. The ambulance came, took me to the hospital. Um, just had a lot of really scary experiences. And I was hanging out with some really awful people. And um, there was just a lot of times where I was like, man, I might, you know, I might not wake up in the morning. Um, I, I distinctly remember when I, when I overdosed and I, I had that seizure that I, I thought I was going to die, you know? And so, uh, I wanted to stop using drugs and I couldn't, that was kind of the hard part was that I really wanted to, I desperately wanted to stop using and I couldn't just every time I turned around, there would be drugs in front of me or I, I just could not seem to get together enough. Uh, gumption, I guess, to, to get sober and stay sober. So um, I was in and out of rehab for a really long time. I, I went to three, four, five, something like that, four or five different treatment centers. Um, there were residential treatment centers. I think all together I was in treatment for like a year and a half or two years at all these different places. Um, and I've still never been in a treatment center that I didn't get high in. I got high in every single one of them. And um, eventually through um, a lot of people in my family are sober now. A lot of them were also addicts and alcoholics, and a lot of them are sober now. So eventually I did get sober. Um, I used a 12-step program. Uh, it was really, really important. It was just like instrumental in my life, and it still plays a big part in my life today, actually. But um, I used a 12-step program, and I did eventually get sober. I, I had some ups and downs. I had some relapses, but you know, just things could have worked out so much worse for me. The truth is, is that I should, I should probably either be in prison or dead right now. And statistically, I definitely should be either in prison or dead 
or still a junkie somewhere, you know, but uh, I'm not. I'm not. Somehow, miraculously, I've managed to have this amazing life now. I get to travel. I have a job that I really love. It's super unconventional. Um, I, I can't dream of doing anything else. I'm surrounded by amazing people constantly, including my husband and including my son, who, you know, like when I was a kid, I never dreamed you could have a happy marriage. I just didn't know that that was really a possible thing. I had never really seen one, you know? And so I just didn't know that um, you could really have like a partner in life that you were truly happy with and comfortable with. And um, yeah, I get to have that. I didn't think that people actually had jobs that they liked. I certainly never thought that being a professional athlete was in the cards. It wasn't even something that I could conceive of. So that's why I'm so lucky. That's why I'm the luckiest woman in the world. And I tell people all the time, they don't believe me, but it is true. Yeah, that's, that's great. You know, I'm, I'm, um, I'm looking at this paragraph that I have highlighted on this piece of paper that I printed out from the email that Aurora sent me. And throughout this paragraph, she has in parentheses and in quotations, um, lucky after all of these situations that you actually just mentioned, you know, the situation with the seizure, the situation, uh, you know, you finding your husband who um, is called St. Joe, she says, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and she says, lucky in all of these uh, parenthetical, uh, like almost periods that, that end these situations. Do you know, I guess where my mind goes next is you said that all of this stuff, you look at it as a situation where you're lucky because you've never seen it before. You said that your relationship with your husband, you feel lucky because you've never seen a a marriage that works like that. Does that come from your childhood? Oh, uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, that's where everybody kind of gets their idea of what, what your adulthood is going to be like, I think. Um, yeah, I I had never seen two people have a really happy marriage. Um, well, I think my dad and my stepmom did have a very happy marriage, but he died when I was 11. So I didn't really get to like witness that. And then most other people that I had, uh, like, like I had an aunt and uncle that seemed to be pretty happy. And I remember asking my aunt once, like, are you really, like, you still love him after all this time? Are you really happy? And she said, oh, yes, even more so. And I just didn't believe her. I was like, you're lying. <laughs> you know, I just thought it wasn't possible, you know. So, yeah, I I am lucky to have such a good marriage. But there's, you know, there's other things, too, that I feel very blessed to have. I'm blessed to be surrounded by great people around me. I'm blessed to have uh, an avenue for my sobriety. I'm blessed to have this job that I really love. I'm blessed to have so much drive, you know, like I, mm-hmm. I do have a lot of drive as a person. I'm, I'm a very motivated person. And I, I like to work on myself. Like I like to make myself a better person. And so I think it's lucky to have those traits too. Um, yeah, just all kinds of stuff, all kinds of stuff. So I asked the crude Instagram followers if they had any questions for you, and Jason Borgstead sent one in. Okay. He says, we lose so many people to addiction right now. You're one of the few people who made it out and turned your life in a positive direction. What was the turning point, and what broke through and convinced you to make the right choices to get you back on track? Well, for me, a couple things lined up really well. Um like I, I could not seem to get sober. Like I said, I really wanted to, and I just could not seem to 
find it. I couldn't seem to get there. Every day I would go to bed. Uh, I would go to bed fucked up. You know, I'd go to sleep and I'd be like, okay, tomorrow's going to be different. Tomorrow will do, you know, tomorrow will get sober. Tomorrow will be different. And then I'd wake up. I'd have every intention of getting through my day sober. And just after an hour or two, I'd be like, I can't take this. I'm just going to get high real quick. Or I'm just going to have one drink or whatever it was. And then uh, I would get high real quick. And then, of course, I would be off to the races for the rest of the day and just be fucked up the rest of the day. And then I would go to bed that night and I'd go, okay, tomorrow's going to be different. I'm going to, tomorrow I'm going to get sober for sure. Tomorrow's going to be different. And I would like write it out. I would make lists. I would make plans. I would make, I would wake up the next day and just the urge to get high or to get drunk would be so strong. Like it would be so strong. So, uh, I would give into it and then I'd think, okay, tomorrow's the day. So that just went on for years and years and years, right? Like, uh, it went on forever. Yeah. And, um, I finally found a 12 step program. I was, you know, not sober, but I was going to this 12 step program every day. I was talking to the people there. I found a couple people that I really liked and, um, you know, it took a couple tries. It took several tries, but, uh, it finally started sinking in that like, if I keep doing what I've always done, I'm going to keep getting what I've always gotten, mm-hmm. you know? And so I had to do something different if I wanted something different and I wanted something different really, really badly. And, uh, I found a lady that I really trusted. I really liked her a lot and she was very, very good to me. And so, um, I, she was my mentor, you know, in, in the 12 step program, they call it a sponsor, but for me, you know, you can call it whatever you want, but she helped me a lot. And she, she gave me, um, a way to connect with, with my higher power. And now that for me, that higher power has kind of changed. Like I really believe in the universe. I think the universe has, um, has a plan for me. I think I'm, I'm part of that plan. You know, I think I'm like on the broad highway. And, uh, Mm -hmm. for me, that's just been super important part of my recovery. And I found it, uh, through the 12 steps, but there's all kinds of ways that people get and find sobriety. It doesn't necessarily have to be a 12 step program, but it certainly can be. And a lot of, um, a lot of programs are designed around the 12 steps, whether they say it or not. You know, there's a lot of programs that claim to be different than a 12 step program. And they actually just kind of use the 12 steps, but maybe in a different order or the wording is a little bit different. Um, but most of, most of the programs for sobriety involve admitting that you have a problem, um, finding somebody that you can trust, being really, really honest about yourself, like super honest about yourself making amends to people that you've done harm to and then going out and helping others. Most programs that are self-help programs in any capacity include those elements to it. If somebody's listening to this episode struggling with addiction, uh, currently struggling with addiction, what advice would you give them? Probably to, it just kind of depends on the person. It depends on how, how bad they are, right? So if you're a heroin addict, you probably need some kind of inpatient treatment so that you can get away from that and get your body physically clean. Um, you know, if it's, if it's like, I just can't stop smoking cigarettes for the life of me, uh, you probably don't need inpatient treatment, I would say, but there's definitely steps that, you know, you can take. So you have to be honest about like, how badly do you want to quit smoking? How badly do you want to quit using heroin? How badly do you want to stop drinking? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, find some sort of help because if you could just do it on your own, you obviously would have done it already. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So if 
that's kind of the whole point of being an alcoholic or an addict is that if you could just stop whenever you wanted to, well, you probably would have done it already. So you can't, you know, yeah. so uh, it's going to require a little bit of outside help, you know, whether that, whether that comes in the form of like a priest or a pastor or a sponsor in a 12 step program or a psychotherapist or, or like for me to quit smoking, I used Chantix, which is a medication and uh, it worked really well for me, but I could not quit smoking on my own. I needed some help. And so I think it's important to be, number one, really honest. Like, you have to be honest, not just in getting help, but you have to be honest throughout that entire process of of getting sober and staying sober. I think it's important, too, to, to um, you know, not just be honest about your addiction, but be honest about what kind of person you are. Most addicts and alcoholics are assholes. They're real selfish, you know. And they've been that way for a really long time. And so it's important to recognize that and try to become a better person however you can. You know, and it doesn't happen overnight. It takes a long, long time. But, um, you know, the first step is one day. So, so yeah, I think that would kind of be my advice is find somebody you can trust. Find some, get some kind of help, you know, and um, get about to being honest with yourself about yourself. When you got sober, what kind of person did you realize you were? Uh, I was your pretty typical addict alcoholic. I was really selfish, super, super selfish, um, just really um, self-centered, um, scared, dishonest. Like I, I was a lot of things, you know, and I, I think everybody is those things to some extent. But for me, I had to really look at like the things I was doing and how I was doing them. So uh, I was like, I always imagined myself as like this like fun drunk. I thought I was like so fun and funny and everybody liked me. But the truth was I was just like your kind of typical drunk, <laughs> you know, just because I like to party and have fun didn't make me any better than the next drunk. Mm -hmm. um, and just like, just like any other addict or alcoholic, uh, I was going to end up in the ditch somewhere. So, I, you know, I had already been to jail. Um, I... I I don't know. I just made a, a lot of really terrible decisions one after another. And I was really immature. Um, I was not a good mom. I wasn't a great friend. I was in all these terrible relationships, just making terrible relationship decisions. So, yeah, that's the kind of person I was. <laughs> I was thinking we could close out this conversation with a story. Is it, Are you cool with that? <laughs> Uh, I think so. Depends on what kind of story. <laughs> so this is from uh, going back to Aurora's bio of you. So I know pieces of the story, but I think it would be great to hear it from you because it is, according to Aurora, the most Lauren Murphy shit she's ever heard. <laughs> oh. Okay, it's the story about how someone stole a bunch of stuff from your husband's car and then afterwards you were able to find that person on Facebook. Oh, yeah. So somebody did steal a bunch of stuff out of my husband's car, including his laptop, his military uniforms, um, all kinds of stuff that was like important, you know, and some of it was irreplaceable. And uh, we did figure out who had done it. I can't remember how we like found out, but um, we did. And uh, he was on Facebook. And so I wrote him a letter and just told him, you know, that I used to be just like him and that I wasn't uh, like, I think I looked up his record too, and he had a bunch of drug charges and he'd been in jail a couple times and just shit like that. Like your typical, typical alcoholic addict piece of shit, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I, I wrote to him and, um, just told him that like, you know, we knew it was him that had done this thing and that, uh, like 
I used to be just like him and that I had done things like that as well. And that, um, you know, I, you know what, I actually can't even fucking remember what I told him, but basically just that, like, uh, I hoped he got help someday and that there was like programs for him out there if he ever wanted to get clean and sober and that, you know, he could actually call anytime if he wanted to something along those lines that I, I hoped he got some help and that, you know, there was a better life out there for him. And I think I also told him too, that like, you're a thief, but you're not great at it. Like you keep getting caught. You know what I mean? Like your life is clearly not working for you because you're in and out of jail. Um, just from looking at his Facebook, he looked like a super unhappy individual. <laughs> and so it was like, you know, there's, there's things out there, you know, there's a better life for you out there. It's just waiting for you if you want to go get it. And, um, I don't know. I don't, I know that he like saw the message, but I'm not, I, you know, I have no idea if he ever did anything about it. I can't even remember that guy's name now, to be honest with you. Uh, it just seems like so long ago, like, I, um, I'm a different person now than I was when I was drinking and using, you know, and, um, there's, there's been a lot of really like miraculous stories like that. I think that have happened in my sobriety. So forgive me for not having the best memory about it, but it's, it's true. You know, I, I hope that guy did get some help and I hope that he does have a better life now. Like if you're happy with everything you got, you don't go around stealing shit out of people's cars. You know what I mean? So, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I think that that's a pretty unique response. I mean, do you think that that response is a byproduct of your journey so far? Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, I just saw, um, actually, oh, are you still there? Mm -hmm. Okay. I actually just saw on Facebook uh, a trainer that I know, a coach that I know. Somebody shot out the windows of his gym, and uh, he doesn't know who did it, but he put a message out on Facebook that was like, hey, I don't know who did this. Like, we cleaned it up, and we're going to carry on. No big deal. But whoever did this, like, just come in and talk to us. Like, we'll let you come in and train. Uh, you know, like, um, kind of the same message. Like, you know, you have a place here if you want it. You're welcome to come in. Obviously, like, there's something not right with you, and and you know, people that are happy with their lives and happy with what they're doing don't act that way. And so if you want to improve your life, this is the place to do it. You know, you can come in and you can, you can have that if you want. And so I, I think it's not actually that uncommon of a response, but, um, yeah, I think it's definitely a byproduct of my journey and I've been surrounded by really good people. So, yeah. Well, that's great. You know, it's been, it's been really great having you on the show. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Uh, I don't think so. Thanks for having me. Yeah. It's been great talking to you, Lauren. All right. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Cody. For more information about how you can support local grassroots journalism, go to www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Music was produced by Alcoda Beats.